Well, welcome, everybody. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed the first session with Brother Finney. How do you guys feel uh, the first day went yesterday? Good? Awesome. Good. Well, hopefully, we can have another awesome day and continue to, to build upon that and continue to, to think about and catch a, a vision for Jesus and his kingdom and what he wants to do in and through us. And I think as, as just to reiterate, as Brother Finney said, you know, as you go through these times and these sessions, whether it's in your personal devotions and prayer time throughout the day or in the morning or in the evenings, whenever that may be, uh, or if there's something that comes out of each of these sessions, uh, make sure to write those things down. And as he said, act upon them. But you know, be, be writing things down that come to your mind and, and be praying about them and praying through them. <clears throat> so today's day two, um, Vocation Through Salvation is the title. And that might seem like a little bit of a puzzling statement, um, but hopefully by the, the end of today's uh, teaching or class here, we can have a little bit better understanding of what that means, vocation through salvation. Uh, I think it's good if we stop for a moment and just do a little bit of review from yesterday. Um, so yesterday we talked about the power of testimony, right? And that's, that's a tool that each of us can use, um, is our own testimony. We can, we can talk about the testimony of others, but many times our own testimony is powerful because it's the work that God has done in us and is doing in us and through us and sharing that with others, just like the woman, we mentioned the woman at the well who ran away saying, come meet the man who told me everything I've ever done wrong. She wasn't ashamed of the things that she had done wrong. They, although they may have been many shameful things, but in Christ, things can be redeemed. And when we've been redeemed, we can tell others about the brokenness that we've been pulled out of, the darkness that we've been called out of as we enter into the kingdom of light. Um, we looked at the, the book of Judges, right? And the downward spiral that, that that book takes. And at the end of the book, there's this echo of um, there is no king in Israel and everyone does what is right in their own vision. And for us, we recognize that we, we do have a king, right? It's not, we, aren't, we don't live in the time period of the Judges. We have a king and that king has a vision. What is that vision? The kingdom of heaven on earth, right? It's the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the way that we can go about doing that and manifesting that and seeing that reality is, is through the means of making disciples throughout all of the earth, right? It's the command that Jesus gives to us. <clears throat> we looked at discipleship, at least in, in part and through my limited experience, um, discipleship being uh, a missing link in a lot of the, the chains that, uh, if we think about a link in a chain and it being uh, the missing key, you know, we get the go part. Um, a lot of times when it comes to missions and evangelism, um, you know, we can maybe get somebody to say a prayer, we can get somebody to make a decision, um, but where is the teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you? This concept of discipleship being a link that is, that is missing. And, we're going to spend a little bit more time probably on tomorrow's lesson, um, looking a little bit more at the relationship between evangelism and discipleship. Um, they are distinct, but they are also very connected with one another. 
And then we also looked at the importance of seeing the bigger picture, right? We had those zoomed in photos and it was a little bit hard to, to make out and there was a lot, several guesses as to what it could be. And then when we zoomed out, the, the amount of differing guesses or opinions um, narrowed down. And then as we zoomed out a little bit more, we saw the bigger picture. And the ability to stand back and see the bigger picture gives us a much better, not only appreciation, but a much better uh, ability to zoom in on each of those parts and begin to give proper interpretation and application um, to things. And we also looked at the importance of asking questions. Um, many times asking a series of why questions can really lead us to a good place. And hopefully you're seeing, uh, even from Brother Finney's uh, sessions, the, the importance of, you know, I mean, there was a quite a number of, of questions. That was, that was a relatively small section of scripture. And, and I mean, this whole whiteboard was filled with questions. And so when we begin to, to ask the right questions, then we can really begin to, to uncover a lot of great things. Um, something that was mentioned this morning by Brother Finney is that, you know, having an, not only just an appreciation, but a thorough knowledge and understanding of the Old Testament is extremely valuable in trying to understand the context in which the New Testament comes out of. And um, we're going to look at a little bit of that today. We're going we're gonna to go back into the Old Testament and begin to build a framework for our calling and our vocation in Christ. So <clears throat> I want to start this morning with a story. Uh, these are called uh, junk boats in, in China. Um, and this is an, an old boat from the, from the 1800s, mid-1800s. And I want to start with a story of a man named Hudson Taylor. How many people are familiar with that name-ish? Okay, it seems like a good number of people are familiar. So Hudson Taylor lived um, or was a missionary to China in the mid-1800s. And he was the founder of the... China Inland Mission. And this story is a result of his work in China. It was a, a brisk wind blew the Chinese junk ship quickly along the waters, bound for the city of Ningpo. Rather than going below to his cabin, Hudson had remained on the deck to enjoy the night air. Traveling like this seemed to be a, a bit luxurious after his arduous journey by foot, he had made alone to the coast of Shanghai from the inland villages. He sat on a large coil of rope to rest his blistered feet. Nearby was another passenger, and Hudson introduced himself. The passenger was surprised to meet a foreigner, as Hudson had appeared to be a fellow Chinese. The passenger had visited England and was happy to speak with the Englishman again. They talked until late. Hudson said, I had drawn him into earnest conver uh, conversation about his soul's salvation. The man listened with attention and was even moved to tears. They promised to talk more the next morning. As dawn came, the ship was nearing the city of Sunkai. Already noisy crowds of customers and merchants were bustling in the on the shoreline. Hudson was still below the deck when he heard a loud splash and screams from above. He rushed to the top. 
Passengers and crewmen peered over the deck and shouted the man's name. It was the friend from last night who was in the water. Not wasting a second, Hudson dove overboard into the murky sea. The waves were now high. A strong wind had come up and the ship was moving fast away from the spot where his friend had went under. Again and again, Hudson plunged underwater, looking, feeling, but he found nothing. His hope surged when he, saw, when, when he caught sight of a nearby fishing boat with a dragnet hung over the side. Hudson swam over quickly and shouted, come, come drag over here. There's a man who is, who is drowning. Come and drag your nets. But the fisherman glanced at him and said it wasn't convenient and turned to the other side. Dumbfounded, Hudson swam closer and shouted louder, don't talk of convenience. A man is drowning. The, man, the men looked up. We are busy fishing. We cannot come right now. Never mind your fishing. I will give you money. <clears throat> More money than a day's fishing will bring you. Just come at once. The fishermen finally came over and looked down at Hudson in the water. How much money will you give us? Come, or it will be too late. I will give you five dollars. But they wanted twenty. Only after Hudson finally offered to give them whatever he had did the fishermen slowly let down their nets where his friend had gone under. They drew his body out of the water and deposited him on the fishing boat. Hudson could not revive the man, collapsed on the deck. It was only too plain that the life had fled sacrifice to the callous indifference of those who might have easily saved it. Hudson shook his head. He couldn't even persuade a couple of fishermen to save a drowning man. How could he convince congregations of Christians rejoicing in their own security while millions perish for lack of knowledge to come to China and to help? After this event, Hudson prayed earnestly to God thrust forth laborers and for the deepening of spiritual life of the church so that the men should be unable to stay home. Is the body then of so much more value than the soul? We condemn those heathen fishermen. We say they are guilty of the man's death because they could have easily saved him and did not do it. But what of the millions who, have, who, who uh, we leave um, to eternally perish? Hudson said, the Lord Jesus commands us, commands you, my brother, and you, my sister, go. Shall we say to him, it's not convenient? Shall we tell him that we are busy fishing and cannot go? Or, or engaged in other more interesting pursuits? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in the body. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Every one of us has a call. Are we listening? Hudson spoke and said, God is not looking for people of great faith, but for individuals who are ready and willing to follow. Continuing his quote, when Christ said, come, you came. When he says, go, what will you do? I'd like to hear your thoughts and your reactions or your emotions from, from hearing that story. 
Mm-hmm. Fishermen were heartless. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts or emotions as you heard that story? Yeah, I think that's that's an important one. I think that, you know, we can we can we can probably on this side of the story, right? We can look at that and just be like, how could those fishermen do that? If it was me, if I was in the boat, then I would whatever it is that we would do. Um, and I and I think most of us in here would would see ourselves not being one of those fishermen who are standing and saying, "Hey, it's not convenient. That's not enough money." make the offer a little bit more and then maybe I'll entertain the idea. Um, we, I mean, I'm, I'm sure all of us would, would, would have a heart and a desire to, to want to, to save those who, who find themselves in that situation. Um, but many times we, we can grow callous, right? And we can, go ahead, you had something? Sure, yeah. Yeah, we don't we don't know there could be a context and a backstory to to why those men are the way that they are, uh, why they are they are uh, indifferent to the tragedy that's that's in front of them. Um, I know that you know it seems like in in a lot of uh, the developing world and in other countries, um, death is just a reality of of life. Like I mean, and and I know we all know that <laughs> it, uh, on some level, but but when you live in other countries or when you're in a developing world, it's a lot more in your face um, when you have people who are literally starving to death or people who don't have clothing, food, uh, um, shelter, or um, you have the, you know, Uganda is, has been uh, severely suffered under the, you know, HIV AIDS um, epidemic that has happened and killed many. I mean, the average age, I don't know what it is back several years ago, it's, it's probably changed now, but several years ago, um, the average age was 15 because it, a whole, like a whole generation had been wiped out because of AIDS and HIV. And it's just, you know, death just is, is so much in your face that from someone who that isn't in your face all the time, it, it's very alarming. But for someone who death is just almost an everyday occurrence, you, you just walk by and it's just another day. And so maybe that's where those fishermen are. Nonetheless, we need to think about the reality of this story in our own lives. You know, where, where are we? Are we? Are we in the water? Are we Hudson Taylor jumping in and, and diving down and grabbing and calling others to, to come and labor to, to save this person? Or are we standing in the boat and finding excuses or... Go ahead, you had something? Sorry, say that again. The thing that comes to my mind, especially coming from my background, is sometimes you see people and it's like it's it's tempting 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's that's very good. Yeah. Just to assume like th this is a hopeless case, hopeless situation. I, what good am I going to even be able to, to do in this in this situation? It's very easy to grow into that. So <clears throat> I have a, another story <laughs> that I would like to, to share. This is uh, a photo that I took on um, in Uganda on the River Nile. So this is the River Nile there. Um, it starts in Uganda uh, at Lake Victoria and then goes all the way up into Egypt. That's where it's probably most famously known for. Uh, but they have these little, uh, you can kind of see this boat here. Um, it's not a clear picture of them, but they have these uh, fishing boats. And, and you'll see quite a few people, especially early morning, some at night. Um, but throughout the day, people are out there on the lake or on the, the river uh, fishing. One day, this was about a year, I would say almost a year ago or so, um, we were with another family who was there in Uganda, and we were just had took a short trip um, for our two families to spend some, some time together and make some memories with the children. And we walked down to uh, the River Nile, and, it, and when you look at it, it looks pretty calm. Um, it looks like, okay, it's not, it's not too bad. And so we, we entered the water, at least a few of the children entered the water, and you could stand and um, seem like there, was, there wasn't much of a problem. Um, we had some distractions also happening <laughs> at the moment. Um, there, was a, there was somebody next to us who had recently just slaughtered a cow, and, and he happened to be cleaning out the entrails and everything else right, right there. And we're thinking, okay, the water is going that way. Why don't we move a little bit up, <laughs> upstream? So, so to, at least to some degree, there, to a little bit of credit, there was some distractions, so we didn't have full attention on the children who were going inching their way into the water. Um, <laughs> and uh, before we knew it, though, um, I had Ava, um, who is my oldest biological, uh, Longoli, who follows Carol in age and order, um, and um, another young lady, one of the other family's uh, daughter, who were slowly making their way out um, before all of a sudden it got a little bit deep it kind of dropped off and uh, unknowingly there was an undercurrent that was happening because we didn't know that a few days or I guess a day or so before they had opened up the dam which is a little bit further on up the river and so there was a pretty powerful undercurrent and all of a sudden we start hearing screams and cries for help and I see Ava, and she's slowly, it seemed a little bit more than slow, but uh, she's drifting out to the center and kind of going down, and she's not the strongest swimmer. I mean, she's only 11 years old, and, and um, all of a sudden, Longoli is seeing what he can do to get to her. Well, he's not at all <laughs> a strong swimmer. Hopefully, one day he, he will be. Um, and then we have the other young lady, and, um, and she was definitely much more, uh, she 12, was 12 years old at the time. Um, she was much more experienced swimmer than both Ava and, and Longoli, my two children. And so she went over to try to, to help Ava, um, but recognized very quickly that she's not going to be able to get to her, and the, the current was too strong, so she turned around. I jump into the water, and I'm doing everything I can to, to move. I mean, it seemed like, you know, it took forever to get to her, and I'm trying to swim out there and get to Ava because she was the furthest out. Um, the one young lady had started to make it back in and I get to Ava and she's, she's hysterical because I mean she can't touch, she can't swim, she's going under, she's coming up. I get to her, I can't touch, 
I can swim, but I'm totally out of breath and exhausted. And you know, her, she's panicking, so she's trying to climb up and like pushing me under, and, and I'm trying to, to hold Ava up. And I'm thinking in my mind, like, I think we're both gonna die because I have no clue. I like, we're, we're moving, we're drifting. I have no clue what to do uh, at this very moment to be able to get her to safety. Um, thankfully, some fishermen in a boat um, heard the screams and the cries and I look over and these fishermen come up in their boat and so um, they reach out and they grab Ava and they pull her into the boat and um, then I turn around and I try to look for Longoli and he's um, he's a little bit he's at a different part of the river and he's just you know flopping up and down flopping up and down um, I look over and I see the other young lady and she's swimming, but she's not moving. Like it's, it's, it's like she's just standing still because of, it just was too much. And she was moving, uh, swimming and not uh, moving her arms, but not getting anywhere. And <clears throat> so um, Ava gets in the boat. So I hang on to the side of the boat and we get over to where Longoli is. They grab him, they pull him into the boat um, and he's just utterly exhausted. He has that like thousand yard stare, you know, just, just laying there totally you know, expressionless. Um, and then we get over to the other young lady and she's pulled into the boat and thankfully we, we go to safety. So it, it didn't turn out the same, thankfully, as the Hudson Taylor. I mean, it, the, these were fishermen who were, heard the cries and recognized we have a boat. We have an opportunity to, to save life here. And they, they didn't even have to, nobody had to go get them and say, hey, come help they just they recognized what was happening and they they quickly came to the rescue and i'm so thankful um for those men uh without that boat i honestly don't know what would have happened um thankfully everybody recovered i think all of the children um were traumatized um <laughs> after that situation um they have gone swimming since so you know we've got to get back on the bicycle kind of a kind of a deal but uh, we have a much better appreciation for big water at this point. Um, but the, that story, that, that could, the circumstances, that situation could have turned out differently, and I'm, I'm thankful um, that it didn't. But it reminds me of the reality of the call. You know, what if those fishermen didn't answer the call? Uh, what if they, I mean, they, they actually fished fish, and that day they fished some people, um, you know, but, but what about in our lives? Are there, are we in a boat? Are we at a place where there's people who are crying out or things that we're recognizing that are broken and, and Christ has, has given us the resources that we need to speak into that brokenness? And are we neglecting those everyday opportunities that are around us? So as we start the lesson, um, I wanted to define our terms a little bit. So Matthew gave us this good working definition for the week, I think, for uh, discipleship, or disciple, not discipleship, uh, but one who allows Jesus access to his whole self. Now, obviously, to be a disciple, uh, to be a student or an apprentice of someone, a master, a teacher, um, a rabbi, in this instance, it's Jesus, but it's, it's good to always bring further definition to things. It's one thing to say, oh, I'm a student, um, it's another thing to say that you've actually not only are a student of Christ or a student of Jesus, but you've opened yourself up and allowed Jesus to have full access to yourself. 
Another piece, um, actually, that Brother Finney, I think, mentioned uh, today is a disciple is a fisher of men or people, as he said. Um, we don't have to limit it to, to men, but uh, fishers of men. And I know this is probably, this might be a bit cliche, but we need to get in our mind that disciples make disciples. Um, that is a, is a reality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to be engaged in those things. It's actually a part of our DNA. When we receive the, the new nature of Christ, it, it should be entwined in our DNA that disciples make disciples. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is the result of, of saying, I'm going to follow Christ. Um, next class or tomorrow, I'm thinking we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about discipleship, as I said, kind of distinguishing between uh, evangelism and discipleship. But I, as maybe just to, to give a little bit of a, something to be moving around in your mind uh, as you think about discipleship is I, I think Paul, when he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, like that's in my mind what discipleship is. Um, we don't have to try to come up with a bunch of fancy algorithms and, and things. I mean, obviously, teachings and studies and various things are, are helpful, and they're a piece of, of the equation. But simply, it's, we should each have the testimony to say to somebody, follow me, because I'm following the Messiah. And it's not, that shouldn't be a prideful statement. You're not trying to make a claim or statement about yourself, but you're saying, I'm following this way that leads to life. I'm following the master, and I want you to follow me as I follow him. And I'm a little bit further along in that journey, but I wanna, I, I've been on those rough patches where you're at now, I've been there, and let me help you through that. But keep following me because I have my eyes on the Savior. And I think yesterday when we went around the room and, and talked about some of the reasons of why we're here, uh, one of the things I think that was mentioned was it, this concept that it, it's kind of challenging and maybe I, I may not articulate it exactly how it was stated. I'm going to articulate it the way I understood it. Um, and you can let me know if, it's, if it was accurate or not. But um, this concept of it, it seems like it's challenging enough to, to focus on being a disciple that it's hard to know exactly how to start making disciples because just being a disciple is enough in and of itself. And, and I can understand that. I think I've, I've felt that and, and thought that throughout the years, but we have to, to remember that a big, a, in the DNA of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be making disciples. That's actually what it means to follow Jesus and to call others to follow me as I'm following Christ. Um, <clears throat> how many, let's see, what are the different occupations of people in here? I'm just curious. Uh, I know we have, we have some handyman, uh, shed builder. There we go. Sorry. Metal roofer. Okay. Cleaner. Okay. Sorry. General contractor. Okay. Truck driver. Sorry. Statistician, okay. Web development. Sorry. Web development. Web development. 
John, what do you what do you do? Uh, I work with Jacob. We do kind of like a bunch of these different things. Okay. Construction. Construction. Okay. All right. Well, let's use that. That seems to be a, a common one that that's in the room. So. Um, a hospital. Okay, that, that's good. What do you do there? I'm a nurse assistant. A nurse assistant. Okay. So I think this example, well, I'm hoping this example is going to work because I'm coming up with it as we're sitting here. So we'll see. <laughs> if, it, if it falls flat, let me know. Um, but let's use the construction one. I think there's, there's enough um, different people that work in some line of construction here. So um, if you have somebody who's told, what does it mean when somebody's green? Fresh, right? Okay, yeah, fresh. They probably have very little, maybe even no experience, right? And um, if you're, let's say that you guys are going to be going out and you're you're building a house, um, are you just going to give them the tools and say, "Have at it"? What do, What do you normally do? What's the process, at least to some degree, with someone who's new? Give them give a little direction. Okay. Without cutting their finger. <laughs> okay. You supervise more, I imagine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Probably show them how first, maybe, if you have opportunity. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so you're going to show them how, you're going to give them some, some basic, very basic instruction, right? You're not going to start them on the big stuff. You're not going to be like, um, I mean, what would be a big, I don't, I'm not a construction guy, so this, maybe I, I need to be there. Exactly. Don't know what any of that is. So doing that. So I, I might be the, on your next job site. I'll be your, your green uh, uh, new guy. Okay. Um, so framing in, what'd you say, a valley or a gable? So you're, you're not going to say, hey, here's, look, draw it on the paper and say, here you go. Go, go figure this out. Right. You're going to start them out on something simple, on something that they can understand, something that they know. You're giving them that one step, right? Because one step makes two steps, makes three, and ultimately eventually you've covered some ground as time goes on, right? And so um, if you think about discipleship or discipling from, from that aspect in the realm of I'm discipling this guy to become a carpenter or an electrician or a, a, a metal roof installer, is that, what do you call it? There you go. Um, you know, whatever the case may be, you're gonna start them on some small things, that tasks that you know that they can handle, give them a little guidance, probably show them how to do it, and then release them to do those things. When they show some proficient, proficiency and the ability to handle that, well, what are you going to do? You're going to give them a little bit more, give them some further instruction, probably show them again uh, um, whatever this new task is. And that's, that's you're, you're inching your way into this relationship and this process. And that's what discipleship is. I, so anyway, we'll, we're, we're going to focus more on that tomorrow, but maybe just a little bit of a... Of a um, a look into or a glimpse into tomorrow. So vocation through salvation. I want to look back at the Old Testament and I'm going to make the assumption that most of us have at least some sort of a, a basic or decent understanding of some of the major stories of the entire Bible. So we're going to first begin with Genesis, um, and what's the story that we find when we first open this, the Bible? Creation. Okay, good. <laughs> We're all together. All right, it's the story of creation. So <clears throat> when we look at that story of, of creation, 
um, we're going to notice several things, right? So what what's being created? The world. Sorry. The heavens and heavens and the earth. Good. So so it's the story of of reality. It's the story of of how things came to be, and there are some some distinguishable things within that creation. We have plants, we have animals, we have um, fruits and trees and all the stuff that, that God creates. And what does he say about the creation? It's very good. It's very good, right? So it's very good. Now there's one thing that he distinguishes out of that creation, and what is that? He creates man. Man. Or human, right? And why? What is it that is noticeable about humanity? It's made in God's image. Living soul. A living soul. Good. So he's made in God's image, and he is a living soul. So this is distinguished from the other. Um, aspects or pieces or organisms within creation. Now, what does it mean to be created in God's image? What's a simple word that we can use to be, without a complex definition, I'm a, I'm a, I like to simplify things, so um, without getting too complex, what does it mean to be created in God's image? So, Sorry? A soul. A soul. A soul? Okay. What else? Character, personality, okay. God's likeness. In God's likeness, okay. What does it mean to be in his likeness? Look like him. To look like him, okay. So if you if you um, look into a mirror, we're getting there. Reflection. A reflection. Reflection, good. And what's another word? What's another way that we could say a reflection? It's something that represents, right? A representation. So I think a very simplistic way to think about being made in God's image is to represent to represent God so God creates this world he creates the earth and he puts mankind puts humanity in it and they're going to be his representation right they're going to to exercise God's rule and God's authority and the way that they're going to represent God it, it lines out a few things there it says that um God created man in his image, in his, in his uh, image he created them, male and female, he created them. Um, and he, he, he blessed them and told them to do what? To be fruitful. Multiply. So he tells them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue, and have dominion, right? Now it seems like these three, to some degree, almost seem like they're the same thing, right? I mean, like fruitful gives us idea of producing something. Multiplying is taking that which you've produced and 
making it larger, right? And then filling is taking that which you've multiplied and actually causing it, it to fill. Um, I think a way to, to think about these things, this is the way in which humanity was to be God's image bearers in his good world that he created them. If you think about each of these things, all of these things produce life. These are all life-producing activities. That's how um, God intended. He, he creates humanity, and he, he actually invites them and calls them. It's their vocation. Their vocation is to actually participate in the ongoing work of creation. God's put them there to work, to keep the garden, right? The, the aspect of work didn't come as a result of the fall. They were supposed to, to work the garden and keep the ground. Um, so... To subdue, what, what, does, what does it mean to subdue? What are the various ways in which subdue is used? It, it can be used in both positive or a negative uh, way, just in general, in English. But to bring it under control. To bring under control, right? So to, to harness the potential of something, bringing it under control. So there's an example we would, uh, that we use in, uh, in Uganda because there's a lot of farmers. Um, a good portion of uh, East Africa is used for farming purposes. And one thing that if, if somebody goes and buys a, a shamba, a shamba is a farm, um, and you go and you buy a farm, typically it's not going to be ready for planting, right? I mean, unless you buy an already working farm. Um, what are you going to have to do? Like, let's say that you buy some major piece of land and you want to uh, grow corn on it, um, what, what are you going to have to do to be able to grow corn? You're going to have to clear it, cultivate, cultivate irrigate. irrigate. Go ahead, Dom. Oh, fertilize. <laughs> okay, fertilize. Plant. Plant. Very good, right? So, so you're going you're to have to subdue the land. You're actually, you, so you have something you see the potential of what it can be, and then you're going to harness that potential, and you're going to actually do what it t what's necessary to make it produce that which you desire to, to plant or cultivate, right? So I think this is the sense in which subdue is, is happening, that God's, God's putting humanity in, this, in, in, in the world or in the garden, and the, the, the potential is limitless, and they have this, this amazing opportunity in front of them to, to harness the potential of God's good creation. And he tells them to have dominion. What does dominion mean? Control. Sorry? Control. Control? Okay, good. Control, what else? What are some other words? Rule. Rule? I'm not sure who said it. Rule, sorry. Authority. Authority. Good. So control, rule, authority. Um, so whose who's dominion are they representing or exercising? Is it their own? God's, right? So, so what it means in God's intention in the garden is that humanity is ruling with God, but under his dominion and rule um, as his representatives. This is human space. They've been, God created a special place just for humanity. And notice that humanity doesn't happen after the fall. It happens, it, it it's a result of creation, right? This is a side point, but it, it is something that, a, a point that I like to actually distinguish. If I say this statement, well, 
What do you expect? I'm only what? I'm only human. What, what does that typically mean? That you make mistakes. That I made a mistake, right? It's not an indication of like anything great that I did. Usually it means, whoop, he messed up. Well, what do you expect? I mean, he's only, he's only human after all. Um, but, but, but human isn't a result of the fall. What it actually means to be human means to be Christ. That's why we're a totally different lesson. We're not going to get into that. But I mean, when we get into the, to the incarnation, Christ, Jesus coming in the flesh, showing us what humanity is capable of doing when it's fully surrendered to the Father, when it's fully engaged in, in God's purposes, this is what humanity is capable of doing when surrendered to God. That's Jesus coming in the flesh, showing us what hu human flesh is capable of doing when it's surrendered to him. Um, so <clears throat> this, uh, this concept of ruling, subduing, participating in, in all things that produce and create life. That's the story that we, when we open the first page of Genesis, this is the vocation of humanity. This is what we're supposed to be participating in. It's in the DNA right on the very first page of the things that we're supposed to be participating in. And these things allow us to truly represent and be God's, God's image bearers. Now, if we get to the end of the Bible, and this is, we're, we're zooming out, guys, so um, the Bible is a lot more complex. It's got a lot of layers, okay? So there's a lot between Genesis and Revelation, but I'm wanting us to, to zoom out and look at some pictures here. Um, so uh, when we turn to uh, the book of Revelation, actually, let's do that. Let's have somebody... If I could have somebody volunteer to read, Gen uh, not Genesis, Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. And he showed me a pure river of water and life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun. The Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Thank you, Brother Nate. So, as you started just those first few verses, what, what does this give you a picture of? Does this remind you of any other place in the Bible that has been talked about? The Garden of Eden, right? I mean, we've got trees, we've got rivers, we've got, I mean, it's, this is potent with a picture that, like, if you, if you read, you read the first page and you read the last page and you're like, wow, these, these bookends almost look identical. Um, obviously, there's a whole lot in between there, but if we just simply step back and look at the, the two bookends, we start with creation and we're ending with new creation, right? Like God's intention and design and his ideal hasn't changed. And he's, he's good, you know, everything that's in between is God working in, with, and through his creation to bring about that which he originally designed and desired. And, and the more that we can understand that and step back and see that, that look, it's not about just where you're gonna go 
when you die. But there's actually something that God is wanting to do in, with, and through us as his people that has actual lasting effects for eternity. And it's interesting here. So, I mean, we have rivers, we have trees. It definitely looks like the garden. And what does it say about his covenant people? They shall what? They shall reign forever and ever, right? And that reign, once again, is having dominion. It's, it's restoring that which was lost. What's, what's lost in Adam is found in Jesus. in Jesus, right? He's the resolution to the story that happened, things that fell apart in Adam. He's, he's the resolution to the story of Israel and where it falls short. And, and he brings in a new creation for us. Okay, so we're going to continue in, in this story. And like I said, um, I'm not trying to do an oversimplification. I'm, I'm wanting us just to kind of back up and, and have a, a good uh, aerial view, if you will, 30,000-foot view. <laughs> um, if any of you have flown in planes, you, you get a pretty good lay of the land when you're flying. So let's look over. Um, we're going to turn over to Exodus. And... <clears throat> The events that are, that are leading, actually, let me highlight a couple more things. What is it, out of both of these stories, what's significant about both of these things? Before man sins, before rebellion uh, it, it enters into the story and, and causes a separation, where is God at? Among them, right? He's walking in the garden. So Eden becomes the, the overlapping of heaven and earth, of God and humanity. It's, it's God's, uh, God's realm and the realm of humanity are overlapping. They're together, right? And what, what happens as a result of sin and rebellion that enters into the story? Yeah, those spaces become very separated. And, and it's not God departing. It's actually humanity being kicked out, right? Sent out of, out of the garden. So this... Here, the picture we're getting is, is once again, is, is the overlapping of those things, right? So, I mean, think about that. In the garden, they're together. Humanity is, is kicked out, and so now we're, we're in this, this wild, chaotic world, and, and um, God is going, God has a plan. He's going to work something out, um, but his intention and his idea is, once again, to bring those two realms or those two spaces um, to overlap once again. And it, to me, that starts to, to bring some real substance to the prayer. Like, it's not just an empty prayer, but when we pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth. As it is? In heaven. And it's like inching. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And it's, and it's moving. And it's like it's, the work of Jesus is, is, is bringing those two realities back together again until we see it in its fullness. And that, that new creation is something that we not only get to be recipients of, but we actually are, are invited and called in to participate in that work that is being done through the Messiah. So uh, the story goes on. Like I said, I'm going to assume that, that we have some basic understanding of the, the Old Testament story here. And, and God raises up. So curse enters into the story as a result of sin, right? And Later, there's a certain 
man who enters the story named Abram, later Abraham. And what's going to come as a result of this? What are some of the promises made to Abraham? Okay, so he was going to be the, the father of many nations. Yes, very good. So, all the families. will be blessed. So <clears throat> he's going to be a father of many nations. Um, there's the promise of land, what later becomes known as the promised land. Um, and one of the major ones is that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's an interesting thought if you think humanity's rebellion brings about a curse which puts humanity walking away, right? Walking away from God and his garden making themselves enemies of God, and now God's going to bless his enemies through Abraham and the rest of the world. And this is the gospel that Paul talks about. Gospel, uh, Paul says that the gospel was preached to Abraham long before. And that good news was that he was going to establish a man and his family and, and reestablish his blessing among humanity so that it could spread to all the world. And that, that's the calling that Israel had. That was the mandate of Israel was to step into this as his covenant people and then to manifest that to the rest of the world. Now we know how the story goes. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't quite work out the way that, that uh, Yahweh had, had hoped um, because once again, he's, he's taking the risk. He's using um, these human agents that are, are free will agents to, to choose and do the things that they, they want to do just as Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve chose to not, or sorry, chose to eat of the tree in which they were not supposed to eat of. And so if we fast forward a little bit more into the story, um, we find Israel growing as a nation and they find themselves in the land of Egypt, right? As a result of a, a great famine that happens during the time of, of Joseph. As we know, I'm, I hope we're familiar with that story. He's sold into slavery by his brothers. He's taken to Egypt, fascinating story. Do an inductive Bible study on the story of Joseph. I'm telling you, it'd be, it's amazing. Um, but he's sold into slavery. Um, he becomes second in command and this is what uh, as the famine happens, just as it was, uh, as it was told in the dream, um, Joseph is put in charge, and he ends up saving, he ends up being a blessing to all the families of the earth, and eventually this causes his family to come up to Egypt, and this is where Israel finds itself occupying or living in the land of Egypt. Well, as time goes on, a new pharaoh, a new king of Egypt arises, and he doesn't know Joseph, he doesn't know the stories. All he knows is there's these foreigners that live in his land, there's a lot of them, and there's a chance that they could rise up and maybe overtake us. And, and so he is going to bring them into subjection, bring them into slavery. And um, that's where we enter the story of Moses, right? Moses is uh, one who is raised up to become the 
deliverer. Um, God uses him to be the deliverer of the people of Israel out of Egypt. And when, another fascinating story, but we're, we're not going to go too deep into it. But uh, when they're called out of Egypt, where do they travel to? The first place they, uh, they, they come to the Red Sea, right? They're enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. They come to the Red Sea. They come out. And then where, where's the next destination it talks about? Well, they travel through the wilderness to mainly to Mount Sinai, the next actual location. Um, so they get to Mount Sinai, and this is where God's going to make a covenant with his people. Um, so turn over to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, I'll start in verse 1 there. Now in the third month, after the children of Israel departed from the land of Egypt, on the same day they came into the Sinai Desert. For they departed from Rephidim, came to the Sinai Desert, and camped in the desert. So Israel camped there before the mountain. Then Moses went up the mountain of God and called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a special people to me above all nations, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people, and laid before them all these words the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered with one accord, and said, Everything the Lord said we will do and hearken to. So Moses reported these words to God. So here is the beginning of a covenant. And what does God express? What does he say that he wants? A kingdom of what? Priests. Of priests. Right? He wants a kingdom of priests. Now, I don't know about you, but any time, like if you, if I'm, I'm not a political person or anything, but if you were to start your own nation, probably not going to start with priests, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I would think, especially, you know, in, you know, in nowadays, like if you were to find some, some piece of land and be able to start your own, your own nation, what's one of the first things you want to make sure to do? Secure the borders, right? And well, how are you going to secure the borders? Well, you're going to need a military. You, got, you know, all of that. You you typically wouldn't start with priests. What's significant about having a whole kingdom, a whole nation, of priests? What what does a priest do? Sorry. Sorry. I, approaches God, right? So yeah, a priest has access. Okay. What else? It can't be self-serving. They serve. Mm -hmm. They're an intermediary, and uh, they have a ministerial role mm -hmm. for somebody. Exactly. 
exactly. You're not there for, for your, own, your own stuff. You're there to serve. You're, you're there open-handed. Did you have something, Dom? Oh, sorry. You, taking up the sword of the Spirit. Taking up the sword of the Spirit. Okay. What else? Priests are supposed to be holy. Holy? Very good. Oh, that's what you're going to say, too? Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, all the things that we're touching on, they, they're, they're there to um, represent God to humanity and humanity to God, right? They, they, they stand in this intercessory role. They're the ones who are supposed to be pronouncing blessings, right? They're the ones who are supposed to be, like, if you want to, go to, if you want to, to gain a blessing, you would, you would want to go to the priest. They're the ones that, that stand there as God's representatives um, in the created order. Now, sadly, um, it doesn't take long, but does God get a kingdom of priests with Israel? Mm-mm. It, it doesn't take long at all. He ends up having only one tribe in Israel that becomes a kingdom of priests. So instead of having a kingdom of priests, he gets a kingdom with, with priests. Do you understand the difference between of and with in that sense? A kingdom of priests means the whole, the whole, everything, the whole kit and caboodle, like the, the whole thing, everyone is a kingdom of priests and is, is there to intercede and to bless and to play and a, a part in being God's representatives. And because, once again, of now sin and rebellion, what happens? It's the calf story, right? They go up, uh, Moses goes up on the mountain, not sure what happened to him. Hey, let's, why don't we fashion our own little God and, and say, this is the one who brought us out of Egypt. And you're right, 40 days, and it doesn't take long before, once again, it's, it's almost like we see the garden story unraveling, just different scene, different place, but it's, it's the same story that's unraveling um, at the scenes. And so as a result of human failure, again, um, we see that he ends up with a kingdom of priests instead of a kingdom, uh, excuse me, a kingdom with priests as opposed to a kingdom of priests. Turn over real quick. I'm, I'm sure this is probably something many of you have picked up on and noticed, but turn with me to 1 Peter. Just as we looked at the story of creation here in Genesis and looked at Revelation, and we can see a lot of overlapping and parallel in the idea that's being presented. Um, if we look over at 1 Peter... Starting in uh, chapter 2, I'm going to read starting uh, in verse 1 of chapter 2, 1 through 10. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious." Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up upon, uh, built up a spiritual, excuse me, uh, and precious stones. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. 
But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. What story is Peter thinking about? The story of Abraham. Yeah. Israel. The story of Abraham and Israel. The story, is. It, do you not, did you catch the, it's like the exact wording from Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, his own special people. Peter has in mind, oh, you know what? They failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Israel fails, Jesus succeeds. He's the resolution to Israel's story, and he's God's idea, God's plan hasn't changed. God wanted a kingdom of priests, and these priests were to, to manifest and make him known, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, to, to establish a place in which everyone could look and see who Yahweh is because his people are holy and special and called, and that hasn't changed. Peter's saying, that's you. He's, he's speaking to the church here. He's saying that you were not just stones like the temple of Solomon was built. Solomon's temple was glorious. It was great. I mean, all these stones and, and jewels and all these things that were brought together to build this magnificent temple. And Solomon thought that he was going to be able to receive the, the, the promise, the blessing, the, the prophecy of his father, David, to be able to be established. And his, only, his kingdom only lasts 40 years. For he's gone and then we have the exile where Babylon comes and destroys that temple and then later during the time period of Ezra Nehemiah um, the king of Persia Cyrus he, he returns the exiles back to the land okay the story's moving forward again the people are coming back to the land we've learned our lesson we're gonna build a new temple and what happens no presence they're waiting, they're waiting. We've built the temple. There's no presence. And then we meet Jesus. Emmanuel, which means God with us. Destroy this temple and in three days, I'll rebuild it. What kind of claim is Jesus making? Wait a second. Okay, we had, we had Yahweh's presence. We had God's presence in the garden. Man walked away from it. God chose a man and his family to begin a people in which he would make a covenant and reestablish his, his presence in the earth. That failed because of human disobedience. Humanity forfeited that ability to do that. They have the temples and at various times God's presence, you know, it travels with them in the wilderness uh, uh, leading up to the temple. Well, that temple is, is destroyed, and now we have Jesus. And he's reorienting everything. He's, he's, he's taking what they think, and this is why it's hard for, for a lot of them to, to see. Jesus is the Messiah? 
Like, what can come from Nazareth? Wait a second. Let, let's go back to the textbooks here. Something's not lining up here. This is not, we're, we're, we remember David, the days of David, and that's what the new Messiah is going to look like because we're under the occupation. We're, we're being occupied by Rome, and it's going to be somebody who's going to rise up, and we're going to, we're going to be able to fight. So that's where you get the zealots, um, these various sects within Judaism that, that begin to develop. And Jesus comes lowly, riding on a donkey, right? He comes as the sacrificial lamb. It's God with us and reorients his disciples' mind around what it means to follow me. Think about those early disciples who left their nets, they left their boats, they left their, their family to follow after Jesus. I've thought about this before. Like, what, how do you think they, what do you think their thoughts were when it came to Jesus saying, unless you deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow after me? Because Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. Like, I've thought, like, what, how would they have received that? Would they have been like, hmm, this guy's a little off. <laughs> Not sure what that means, but okay. All right, Jesus, we'll keep, we'll keep following. I wonder, like, was it the actual day, like, when all of a sudden they're, they're seeing him walk up the hill, he's carrying the cross, they're nailing him to the cross, and, and he gets raised up. It's got to be at that point that they're like, like, that had to be a light bulb moment. Like, oh, that's what he meant. Like, like he, he didn't just mean, like, I had to forsake my life, like, I had to leave my, my family and I had to, to leave these few things. Like, like, he said, unless you're willing to actually die, you can't be my disciple. And he's, he just gave his life. That's what he's calling me to. That's, that's what he's calling you to. That's what all of us he's calling us to. And Peter here, I mean, think about, about Peter and, and everything that he goes through as he's following Jesus. And Peter here, he's, he's thinking, he's, he's now drawing this picture of this Old Testament thought process this, uh, of the story of Israel that God's presence dwells where? In the temple, right? Well, Jesus came as that new temple. God with us. It's a, it's a whole new way of, of thinking. And now, now where does God's presence dwell? In and among believers. That's why Jesus, the Pharisees, come to him and say, where is this kingdom of God? And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is not something to be observed with signs and observations. So you can point and say, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom is where? Within you. Within you. What's that reference? Uh, Luke 17. <clears throat> so, Peter is saying now you as living stones, right? So not these dead stones that, that were destroyed by Assyria and Babylon and every kingdom before that has, has totally uh, destroyed all these buildings, but, but now you as living stones are being built up one upon another. And what does that mean? We become the, it says there, the dwelling place of God, right? And then he draws on that story, just like in Exodus, just like we read just a moment ago, you, you are a special people, a chosen generation, a kingdom of priests, my own people that, that will um, manifest me to the world. And, and P Peter draws on that. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. And what's the emphasis of being his special people? To do what? It says there right in the verse. His own special people that you may what? 
show forth the praises or to proclaim the praises, right? That's to show forth, to proclaim, to manifest, to make known the praises of him who what? Called you out of darkness and into his glorious light. So are we, is, is salvation about not going to hell? Any reference of that in any of these pictures or typologies or anything, like, it, it, that's not at all a motivation. There's actually zero motivation about that. It's, a, it's about being called out of darkness and called into his light so that you can do what we were created to do over here, to represent Jesus comes as the express image, right? The actual representation, the word made flesh. He comes as it and he says, follow me. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue, have dominion. To reign with him, we're bringing the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And how do we do it? By making disciples. By proclaiming, showing forth the praises of him who called us. It's the same. Remember what we, we looked at yesterday. What were um, each generation rose up and said that they didn't know Yahweh and the things that he had done. They didn't know about how God with mighty hands and outstretched arm led the people out of Egypt. They could have overcome by, by their testimony, but they didn't pass it on. We can overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. In a, in, a, in a very real way, with a mighty hand and outstretched arms, we prevail. Right? <clears throat> so we need to make sure that we proclaim the praises of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's not forget that testimony. Once again, it's not, it's not about us. We're talking about what Jesus has done and how he's brought us into this covenant and how that is supposed to remake us, renew us, so that we can do what we've been called to do. So, for those of you who are card people, I'm not, <laughs> but uh, this is a helpful illustration. Um, so I'm not exactly sure what kind of a vehicle this is, but. The maker and creator and idea generator of whoever developed this vehicle, is this what they probably had in mind when they first built it and developed it? No. No, not at all, right? I mean, I, I can only imagine that if, if the, the whoever first designed this vehicle saw this picture of it, it probably would make them pretty sad, right? I mean. I know that when my children create something, I had uh, even a, a child, uh, one child yesterday who you know, drew a picture and was in the process of drawing this picture and another sibling, either intentionally or unintentionally, I, I, don't, I don't know, but messed up their picture. And they were devastated over it. And it's like, I mean, that's, it's like, well, I can give you a new piece of paper and you can, you can start over. But, but I mean, I think we all can understand that. Like when you make or when you take time to create something, and to see somebody else just disrespect it or, or not care for it or just to, to, to disregard it, it, it kind of makes you feel bad a bit, right? 
And so I can only imagine that that's what <clears throat> the originator or the creator of, of uh, this vehicle, if he saw this picture, would, would think so. But this is not at all what it was intended to do, right? This vehicle is not fulfilling its, its calling. It's not fulfilling its, its purpose at all. Um, it's actually useless, right? This is, this is what happens to humanity under the, the effects of sin, right? So, so think of being human as being Christ, and sin is a subcondition of humanity that we live in and the world that we live in. It's, it's brokenness, and it's contributing to more brokenness, and, and Jesus is calling us back to be what we were created to be. And, but many of us in our lives before Christ entered in and gave us a new life, found ourselves at this state. Uh, or maybe you're at this state. But I'm sure that we could probably all in our mind, if we were to think about it uh, and name in our mind one, two, or even three people, we could probably think of three different people that, that are in this place, right? Addicted to sin, stuck in life, involved in, in um, addiction and brokenness, and whatever the case may be. So... Let's say that somebody's traveling along the road and, and they see this sitting on the side of the road and, and they know the full potential. They're looking at it and they, you know, most people look by and they just see it as junk. But somebody else walks by, a mechanic, somebody that's more inclined to, to vehicles, walks by and goes, I know exactly what year, what make that is. Man, if we were to rebuild that thing, it would be a beauty. And so let's say that he takes it home and he invests his time and energy and puts a new engine and, and rebuilds the body and new tires and everything that, that it takes to salvage this vehicle. And when he's done, it looks like that. Now, would it be profitable? What would it... If, if he were to finish it, it looks beautiful, it now has a, a great engine, runs great, does it make sense to just kind of put a tarp over it and park it in the garage? No, it's not fulfilling its purpose, right? Like it, it may look beautiful on the outside, but it's just parked. It's not functioning. It's not doing, once again, what it was created to do. This is an illustration, I, I'm hoping that you're starting to catch this is an illustration, a way to think about salvation. That salvation is not from something. You're not being saved so you don't go to hell. You're saved from something for something. Salvation is about being saved from something for something. And that something is, is for the here and for the now. So when we go from this state to this state, we're not meant just to be parked, throw a tarp, hey, just stay clean, make sure we don't, don't get the clothes dirty, just make sure that we, we stay nice and, and tidy, we don't want to mess anything up. It's, it's for a purpose. The goal of salvation is not for you to go to heaven when you die. The goal of salvation, rather, is actually for heaven to be manifested in you to the rest of the world. It's not about making sure that I get the train ticket 
so I know what's going to happen when I die. It's about actually heaven becoming manifest in me to the rest of the world, to my friends, to my family, to my neighbors, to the people that maybe we have trouble getting along with, everyone, because our role is to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Salvation's purpose is to transform us into what we have been created to be and then to enable us to live out our vocation in this present world as a renewed humanity in Jesus. Does that make sense? So we are salvaged. If we want to give a, a definition, my, my simplistic definition that I like to use for salvation is you are salvaged to be human. Just like that car was salvaged to be a car, Jesus comes and he renews humanity. He's, we are salvaged to actually be human because what it means to be human is to to actually be in relationship and surrender to God and allow God to work in with and through us to be what God intended and created us to be we're running short on time I <clears throat> I think I go to, till 12 right 4, 12, <laughs> then I cut into lunch I don't know if everybody would be happy with that so Maybe I'll, I still have a few more things that we were going to get to. Maybe I will actually save that and we'll start with that tomorrow. Um, so keep this picture in your mind. I'll, we'll do a review time tomorrow. Keep this picture in your mind as we begin tomorrow's, tomorrow's lesson um, with all of this. We have about 15 minutes left, so maybe with that time I'll open it up and if there's any um, questions or comments or anything that anyone has, then we can maybe discuss those things.